Amen, and good morning to you. It's great to see you all. We're in Philippians chapter 3 today. And by the way, you men, there's a flyer there in your bulletin for the men's breakfast this coming Saturday. There have been a few women who have been known to dress up as men and sit in the balcony. It's that good. So uh, you want to invite someone. It's free, so just go to someone at work and say it's on you and meet me on the corner of 46th and Capitola and we'll swindle them in. It'll be a great time. No one misses that. It is a lot, a lot of fun, and God meets us there. Bible trivia this morning. You ready? Okay. So Numbers chapter 13. You know the story. Moses sends the spies into the promised land, and they go and they scope it out. They come back with a report for everyone to hear about. Now, 10 of them, we know, came back and said, hey, <laughs> there are giants in the land in comparison to them, we're like grasshoppers. Uh, we are not strong enough. They are way too powerful. Their cities are fortified. We have no chance. Two of them come back and say, no, no, no. It's an exceedingly good land. We're able to overcome them. God is with us. We don't need to be afraid. Now, question for you. Who were the two that came back with the positive report? Okay. Joshua and Caleb. That's correct. But that wasn't the question. Okay. Now, without looking on your phone this morning, give me one name of the other ten. Yeah, I didn't think so. Still no? Okay, and that's usually the case. Their name's just as much in the Bible as the two that several of you shouted out right off the top of your head, Joshua and Caleb. But we don't remember the other ten, do we? Why not? We don't remember the other 10 because, well, their thinking was wrong. God had told the people that he was going to give them the land, the promised land, as an inheritance. The land, of course, for us as Christians now, having filled in the New Testament and all that Christ did, it's a picture of the Spirit-filled, abundant, joy-filled life. Now, what can keep you out of all that God has for you, all the joy that is a constant for us as Christians? A lack of faith. Wrong kind of thinking, incorrect perspective. Oh, that is too tough for us to tackle. We can't accomplish that, even though God said we would. It's somehow we would doubt God's promises. Somehow we would forget that he's sovereign. And if he says we're going to go here, we're going to go there. And wrong thinking. I mean, if anything can sap us as Christians from the joy that we're supposed to have from being born again of the Spirit of God, it's wrong thinking or wrong perspective. So we're studying this book of Philippians, and it is an epistle on joy, but you'll notice, as we've talked about and mentioned the last few weeks, that joy is not so much an emotion that emanates from our hearts as it is an attitude that resonates in our minds. And so along those lines, the key to joy is right thinking, is my perspective. And he reminds us all throughout. You know, we hear joy or we see rejoicing in the text but almost as many times he comments about our thinking or our frame of mind the way that we approach a given situation in chapter one he said to us to live as christ paul said and to die is gain that was his chief focus in chapter two he said let this mind be in you which was also in christ jesus and then again this morning, we're going to read, therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, this mindset, or this frame of mind. 
And you'll notice in all those instances that the word mind is singular. There's a singular mind that we're to have, that we're going to look at this morning, that we're going to be encouraged that if we're mature in Christ Jesus, as many of us as are mature, we're going to have this mind, this mindset about us. It's a mindset that the Apostle Paul has on display for us. In a lot of ways, when you get to Philippians chapter 3, despite all of the tremendous quotable verses we've seen so far, it's almost like we reach a crescendo here in this very passage alone. Where the Apostle Paul, what he does for us, I mean, you really have to pay attention. He's going to give us one thing, that's right, just one thing to take home with us today. I like that because that's easy for me to remember. One thing. He's going to take the whole Christian experience and he's going to basically sum it up in one thing. And so it's important for us to listen. What the Apostle Paul did, able to eliminate distraction, remove challenges, forget about the problems of the past, and to press forward, to press on towards God's call and to the upward call eventually. And so he's going to simplify this down for every single person because it was something that he did well. However, verse 12, where we pick up from last time, he says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Not that I have this down. Not that I'm perfect, not that I've arrived as a Christian in any way. A lot of pastors will comment that that makes them feel better to know that Apostle Paul wasn't perfect. It doesn't make me feel better at all because the simple fact that he has to point that out to us tells me he was a lot further along. I don't have to say that to you all. Did you know, folks, that I'm not perfect? And no one would think it for once. I could write you a letter. Calvary Chapel of Capitola. Did you know I haven't been perfected yet? Everyone would laugh. The Apostle Paul here, he points this out, not because he's actually saying, I don't think that he hasn't been perfected, but because there was then and there is now. This false doctrine that somehow people can reach that place in this lifetime. Nobody is done. God's not going to complete the work in you until you're in heaven. We're all a work in progress. That's a fact. But there is that doctrine. There are those who think that you can reach this state of, quote, sinless perfection. You'll run across someone every once in a while. Say, so, you know, I've been at this a little longer than you, and I've reached this place. I have attained. I no longer sin. And there are those that believe that to be true. In fact, Charles Spurgeon was one who ran into someone like this back in the day, a man who claimed to have have attained to have reached uh, perfection, so to speak. And he thought, really? <laughs> I love how the classic preachers would respond to something like this. I'd probably argue, Charles Spurgeon grabbed a glass of water and poured it over the guy's head to see how he would respond. If you've really reached sinless perfection, let's see how you respond when I pour water all over your head without asking for permission. And of course, the guy got angry and frustrated and showed right away that he had not reached that place. No one reaches that place. And so it is good that Paul tells us that. As long as he'd been walking with God, as powerfully as he'd been used by God, he says, no, I haven't got there yet. But, middle of verse 12, he says, I press on. Then I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. So after all these years, he says, I press on. There's almost like this sanctified, positive dissatisfaction with who he is. Like, I look at me, I'm not there yet but I'm going to press on. Hey, don't tell me that a response to grace produces a lax Christian life in any way, shape, or form. That's what the Apostle Paul would say. I've been living this way, and it's because of God's grace that I continue to press on 
all the time. Here's a guy we know, he would have never settled for some sort of spiritual fire insurance, so to speak. And it's just not his mentality, foreign to his mind. He would always want to press on, to know the Lord better, to be closer to him, to become more like him, Christ-likeness, to fulfill God's call upon his life. And notice here in this verse, we have the motivation for that mindset. He says, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Christ Jesus laid hold of me. I want to lay hold of the reason for which he's laid hold of me. Does that make sense? So you think about it this way. Well, why did Christ Jesus lay hold of me? Well, obviously in part to save me. I mean, I avoid hellfire. I go to heaven for all of eternity. That's a great reason to be laid hold of. But it's more than that. Paul says, I want to know the purpose for it. That every single Christian has a call that God has upon their life. And so Paul says, I keep striving towards Christ's likeness. I see Jesus in my focus, in my crosshairs. He's who I want to be like so I can lay hold of the purpose, of the reason by which Christ has laid hold of me. And I love the way that that's phrased too because it tells us that Jesus is the one who initiated that relationship. He laid hold of him. In fact, some translations, those two words laid hold is translated arrested by Christ or apprehended by Christ. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul's story, you know he was literally arrested, apprehended by Christ. Remember before he came to Christ, his conversion account there in Acts chapter 9, the Bible tells us that he's still at this point breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He is inside a raging storm. I mean, focused on persecuting the church in every way, dead set on it, determined as can be, a raging storm that can't be silenced until suddenly, in the same way that the Lord Jesus could whisper a word and calm the sea and the storm, like we read in the Gospels, Saul of Tarsus, before he was the Apostle Paul, was brought to his knees. He goes from breathing threats and murder at the beginning of the chapter to trembling and astonished by the middle of the chapter. Now, not many of us probably, maybe none of us, have a conversion experience quite as dramatic as the Apostle Paul's conversion experiment uh, change was inside of him. But it's true for all of us that the principle applies, that we all go through something simple, that God, that Christ lays hold of us, that he apprehends us, that he arrests us, so to speak. It's not some casual decision that a person makes in coming to Jesus Christ, where at some point in their life they just kind of go, okay, well, I think I want to be a Christian. No, it is eternal God, almighty God, who steps into a person's indifference to him. It is God's spirit that breaks through sort of the fortress of rebellion that I put up against his love and his grace and his mercy. And he did that for Paul. He does that for you and he does that for me as well. And don't forget that God sought you out. Don't forget in the same way that Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, that every single one of us, though not quite as dramatic, somewhere along the way, the Lord met us on our road to rebellion, so to speak. Doing our own thing, bent on our way, and God met us there along the way. And that reality alone ought to fuel and energize any effort that we have to not only become more Christ-like, but to fulfill God's call upon our lives. And so that's why he says this, okay, in verse 13. 
He says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Okay, does he have your attention right now? But one thing I do. So here's the Apostle Paul, right? Here's a guy who is the Apostle Paul. He writes like half the New Testament. He has led so many people to the Lord. He has preached in the synagogues. He has been used by God to plant churches, to send out missionaries. He's been used by God through his hands. God has healed people. How many people here have resurrected someone from the dead? The Apostle Paul was used by God to resurrect someone from the dead, okay? So no better source than this. And he takes all of the Christian life, he takes everything that he's learned, and he brings it down to just one thing. If you and I can't pay attention to this, then I don't know what we would ever pay attention to as it relates to the Christian life. The Apostle Paul says, listen to me right now, this one thing I do, I'm glad it's not 18 things, this one thing I do, he says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So there's one thing that he does, there's a couple parts. He forgets that which is behind and then he presses forward or presses on or presses toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And as Paul does in several other places in his letters, he draws upon the imagery of athletics. And in this specifically of a runner. It seemed like Paul might have been into the Olympics that was very popular in that day. And he draws upon that imagery here. And he says, what I try to do, this one thing, I try not to worry about what's behind me when I'm running the race. And I try instead to look forward to what's ahead when I'm running that race. Just in the same way that a runner cannot run at their maximum speed if they're always looking behind them, always concerned with what is behind them. But instead they're looking forward to what's ahead of them. Now spiritually speaking, what does that mean for you and for me as it relates to what Paul is telling us to do? It is that spiritually speaking, we have to keep our eyes ahead. We cannot allow ourselves to spend our time looking at what's behind. He says we've got to forget those things that are behind. We've got to leave those things in God's hands. Now, I don't know if there's anything that can paralyze a Christian life and his or her service to the Lord more than their past. In two reasons. One reason because... Sometimes there's condemnation, or at least we condemn ourselves for past failures, hurts, pains, experiences that are still in the forefront of our mind, things that have happened to us, but also acclamation as well, successes and victories along the way. I mean, if anybody could have ever become cavalier or nonchalant in their Christian walk because of past success, it would have been Paul living in the glory days, so to speak. We're like, wait a minute. I have been breaking my back for God. No one does as much as me, so I'm going to retire or do a little bit less. Just go on a speaking tour. I don't need to do this anymore. But he doesn't rest in that. He says, no, I want to lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. He's called me. He's not done with me. I'm still breathing in and out. So I have not attained Christ's likeness yet, so I need to keep doing what it is that God has called me to do. So he never did that. He never allowed himself 
to rest in his laurels, to be satisfied with the successes of the past. But he also didn't do what I think is more common for you and I to do. Some of us maybe sometimes can keep ourselves out of Christian service because we're apathetic because of the victories of the past. But most of us, if we do keep ourselves out of Christian service, representing God in this world, usually the reason is because of past failures and condemnation. You're here today. It's not like I knew you were coming. I know, we know. There are people in this room right now, no question about it. And the Lord's speaking to you right now. That you have kept yourself away from pain because you've been burnt in the past. Some of you I know personally, I was there for it. I saw how you were treated. I know what you went through very personally. And I'm telling you, and you know this to be true, I know how it feels. Everybody in here does. Everybody in here that's a Christian that's been walking with God for some period of time knows what it's like to be disappointed by people, by the ministry, etc. And every single one of us has a choice as to whether we're going to pick ourselves back up and follow Christ or continue to focus on the things of the past. There's a man by the name of Hanley Page. You may not know of him, but he was a pioneer in aviation history. And he's out one day in one of his biplanes, just kind of takes off, and he hears this gnawing sound in the cockpit. He doesn't know what it is, but he's been there, done that before, and he's thinking this gnawing sound sounds like a rat, because rats like to gnaw. They like to chew on, bite on whatever they want. So he thinks to himself, this isn't good, because we're in the air, right? And if that rat keeps gnawing on the wrong things, could take this plane down. So he does some quick thinking, have no idea where he got this from, but he knew from somewhere that rats cannot survive in high altitudes. So he takes that plane and he ascends, he ascends, he ascends until the gnawing finally stops because the rat had died. And fortunately, the plane does not go down. <laughs> okay, what in the world am I talking about? All right. So here's the point. When we are too focused on the things of our past, and I'm telling you, there are people here this morning, you know it to be true, and it's gnawing at you, it is eating at you. It is chewing away at you. And the problem is sometimes we're focused on that instead of ascending onward and upward to Christ where we ought to, continuing to press on towards the goal of Christ-likeness, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And because of that, there's a chance that it could bring us down along the way if we continue to give in to that. And at some point we have to say, you know what? I gotta leave this behind. I'm not going that way anymore. I'm gonna go this way now. And I'm gonna focus on Christ. I'm not gonna focus on the things of the past. Anybody in here, and everybody in here that's been burnt in the past or let down by somebody, if you want to, if you wanna entertain it, it'll bother you. You talk about it for too long, we go to lunch afterwards, you wanna bring it up, it'll bother you, and it can get in the way of what God has for you, and it's not what God has for you to be focused on those things. And at some point, we have gotta leave those things behind. And I don't care what it is, whether it is some kind of way in which you were treated or you were burnt or you were hurt or a sin failure of your past. Hey, you don't know what it's like to be the apostle. I mean, none of us did it as bad as he did. 
If anybody ever had a reason to say, you know what, I could never do Christian ministry, I could never share the gospel, I could never serve God because of who I was, you think about who the Apostle Paul was before he came to know the Lord. None of us were the Apostle Paul. None of us were even close. That was his point last time. None of us were anywhere near that before we came to know God. And yet a lot of times, those things keep us on the sideline. Here's an interesting quote. Satan is an astute historian of forgiven sins. Let me repeat that. Satan is an astute historian of forgiven sins. He studies really well the things that you've already been forgiven of. And he knows them. Well, the Lord has thrown them as far east as is the west you've already been forgiven of. It could be something that's already happened this morning. You brought it to him. He's confessed it. You've confessed it. He's cleansed you of it. And now Satan's there going, well, here it is. And he's bringing it up. And you've already been forgiven of it. He's astute historian of forgiven sins. Now, you think about that as it relates to the Apostle Paul. Paul could say, look, I've been at this 25 years that I've been an apostle. I've been serving God and planting churches and people are getting saved. And the devil couldn't care less. He doesn't care. His thing's like, hey, Paul, I was there. I know. And who do you think you are? The audacity for you to open your mouth one time in a public setting for Jesus Christ. Who do you think you are to do that? Because I know who you are. I know what you were like. You were the one, you're telling people to come to Christ, and you were the one rounding up people coming to Christ back in the day and sending them to prison. And we know that. I mean, if anybody's a hypocrite, this is the devil talking, not me, but if anybody's a hypocrite, you went out, you arrested them, now you're telling them to be them. And that's who you are, worse than that. I mean, here was the guy, he was holding the garments of the men that were stoning Stephen as well, consenting to his death. I mean, did he not see every stone that was thrown that day? Did he not hear every sickening thud of the sound of the stones hitting against Stephen's body on that day? <laughs> Just think about it. What have you done that even competes, compares to that in any way? What, what is holding you back from serving God that's greater than that? Imagine that imagery being in your head and yet still being able to go out and sing, God loves you. I'm a different person. I'm a changed person. That's what he did. Imagine how the devil must have pounded him with condemnation down throughout the years. You think you've experienced the devil trying to condemn you? I wonder about the Apostle Paul. I wonder what that must have felt like to experience that level of condemnation down throughout the years. And why? Why did it happen? because the devil wants to silence him. Do you know why the, that's why the devil wants to condemn you? <laughs> if you're a new creation in Christ, the Bible says there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. He wants to bring condemnation into your life because he wants to silence you. He wants to make you a less effective witness for Jesus. He wants to silence the joy-filled life that you would live on display for people around you, for people to go, what is that about her? I want that. But I don't live that way if I'm living under condemnation, and that's the whole point, over my past. And by the way, when we say past, I think this is a very important point, because I have a bone to pick with some past. I don't know what that means, a bone to pick, by the way. Do you know what that means? Not, does anyone pick a bone? <laughs> with some pastors over some, well, one thing here along these lines. 
And maybe you've heard it before. I've been in church just like you down throughout the years or listen to pastor on the radio. I love doing that. But sometimes they make it sound like that condemnation of our sin comes from our past, like before Christ all the time. Like, I don't know about you. You could be wired that way, but I'm not wired that way. The sin that I committed before I came to Christ, now worried about that does not keep me up late at night at all. I figure, you know what? God knows I was ignorant before then. The sin that keeps me up at night is the sin that I committed after I've come to Christ. Somehow it seems like people act like we don't sin anymore, but the sin that you committed six months ago or two weeks ago or this morning, you got to let that go also. That's got to be in the past. You can't look back at those things also. You bring that to God, it's instantaneous that he forgives you, and now it's back to the prize. It's back to the goal, and it's not thinking about this or that or how I failed yesterday or whatever the case may be. It can be the sins before you came to Christ, but it's the sins of a couple weeks ago also that could be haunting a Christian life and rendering them inoperative and paralyzed for Christ's purposes. We can't let that happen. We've got to leave it behind, all of it in God's hands. And then reaching forward, he said, press toward the goal for the prize. And the reaching forward and the pressing toward sense there is like this idea of straining and stretching, like a runner again, using every muscle, head forward, body bent, towards that finishing tape there with everything that we got. And Paul says, verse 15, therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. What mind? The mind of being focused on the prize. Not worrying about the past, not being distracted by the things that don't matter, but focused on that upward call. God's call upon my life and the finish line of heaven. That needs to be my focus. Paul says, I'm not gonna let the legalist try to get me caught up like we saw last time the judaizers saying that you got to do all these other things jesus plus all these other things i'm not going to listen to that i'm going to keep my focus on christ he says this is a mature mind that the philippians need to have and we need to have as well he says and if anyone if any of you think otherwise god will reveal even this to you sort of like saying if in any way you're not convinced at this point that you need to give everything over to him of your past and let it all go. Because it would be easy for someone to say, well, that's convenient for you, Paul. I mean, the kind of life that you live to say, this one thing I do, I forget the past. But Paul says, no, that's the mature response for a Christian. Because I don't have time to waste my time fretting about the past. I need to be focused on the things that God would have me do now. God's not focused on my past. Why would I spend any time on it? And so he wants me dead ahead, focused. Focus on that finish line there. So he says, if you think otherwise, over time, God will reveal it to you. You disagree with me? You can reserve the right to be wrong. That's what Paul would say there. But God will convince you over time. I'm telling you right now, maybe some of you are holding on to some of the past, not all of the past. Like, you know what, I've let most of that go. It's just that one person. <clears throat> That's not letting those things go. That's not leaving all those things behind if there's still a couple things. And so he says it's got to be all of those things, and God will reveal it to you if you're not yet convinced of it. Nevertheless, verse 16, to the degree that we have already attained, that is, as far as we have come in letting those things go, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Brethren, verse 17, join in following my example. And I like that. Paul says, look, if anybody had a reason 
to not be able to get back up off the ground and serve Christ, it would be me, and you need to follow my example in this. Literally, the word means to mimic him. I mean, it's pretty brave, I think, writing by inspiration of the Spirit in God's holy word to say, mimic how I handle this. He doesn't say here, mimic everything about me. Follow my example in everything. But in this, he says, follow my example. It's very important. He says, and also, note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. So not just Paul that had this down. There are others that God has placed in the church in Philippi, in your life, that are an example or a pattern for you to follow of that kind of a life where I don't let those things from the past get in my way and I press forward. Now, God can bring that person to your mind right now where you sit. You probably know a person who is an example, a pattern that God has set before you of someone who has the childlike faith and the appreciation of grace or a supernatural faith to receive God's forgiveness, to trust in God's grace so that they never dwell on the things of the past so that they're never distracted by some of their challenges as it relates to sin. That they continue to walk the Christian walk, they continue to pray, to worship, to spend time in God's presence, and they're an example for us. Maybe they've been at it a little bit longer. Maybe they just learned some lessons we haven't learned. Maybe God's just especially gifted them to be that way as an example and a pattern for you and I. But whoever that person is or those people are, you think about who those people are right now in your mind. God can bring them to your mind right now. You know already who they are. And you can say, you know what? Just like Paul said, the Christian life is not always easy. And I need an example. I need a pattern of someone who knows how to rest in God's grace. Because of a tendency, whether there's a legalistic teacher influencing me or not, to begin to judge myself, and that's not an effective way to move forward, to press on. So we have enough negative influences, we have enough negative examples in this world, we need to have some positive ones as well. And so that's his point, because, and look at verse 18, on the flip side of this, for many walk, and there are many, of whom I've told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. So there are many that walk who are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now the first question you might ask is, well, who are the enemies of the cross of Christ? Now without looking deep into the context, if you just said, who's the enemies of the cross of Christ? My first answer would would be something like, well, Satan. Satan and the demonic realm would be the enemies of the cross of Christ. And it would be their goal not just with condemnation or accusation from the outside, but even intimidation. They try to trip us up to keep us out of doing the things that God's called us to do. We were here this week, the staff was here, and a few people were here after the seniors group had met on Tuesday. And they came up to my office to bring me down because a woman had wandered in to our fellowship hall. And I can't with 100% certainty tell you that I can discern the difference between somebody who's on drugs out of their mind and someone who's demon-possessed. But every single person who was in that room believes that we were in the presence of a demoniac on Tuesday. And I say intimidation because that's one of the ways in which I've come to recognize when I'm in the presence of one, not that I've been in the presence of one that many times. But that the MO 
is that it's all about intimidation. And this woman, I mean, I think she knew right away that when I entered the room and I was introduced as the pastor, she knew who I was then at that point. And so she turned her attention to me. And so her focus was, I mean, she was trying to stare me down. I mean, she was looking right at me, you know, turning like this and that kind of thing. Now I tell you, any single person in this room stares me down like in a fist fight, I'll go running. I'm a big chicken. That's a fact. That's a fact. But as it relates to a spiritual situation like that, I'm actually not. Because if you have been convinced that you are looking at a demoniac who believes you have the spirit of Christ inside of you, I don't know what in the world could make you more bold. Whoa, it's on. The Bible's right. Here we go. He who's in me is greater than he who's in the world, and here's a demoniac, and they don't like me because I have Christ inside of me? I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. You could never be more brave in that kind of a situation, and so were the other people in the room. Three sisters went up to that lady and hugged her. You talk about a way to diffuse a situation like that. You don't always know what to say to someone. Just love them. If you can't think of something to say, just love them. I don't think that was who Paul was referring to, though, in this instance, contextually speaking, of who the enemies of the cross of Christ were. He could have been referring to the legalist teachers we saw last time, right? The ones that wanted to add to the cross. Well, let's just call them the Jesus and people. It's always, well, that's nice that you believe in Jesus, but don't forget you got to be circumcised or observe the dietary restrictions or you got to keep the law of Moses, or whatever the case may be. They always want to add to that. And here we are to this day. And you notice that Paul said there back in 18, there are many. I mean, there's what? Estimated years ago, 6,000 non-Christian cults in the United States alone. And at least 3,000 people walking around with some kind of a following claiming to be Jesus Christ himself. So there are many that go around, that are adding to the gospel. It's Jesus and. That's all you have to do. So what's the definition of a non-Christian cult? Jesus and. Because what they want to do is they want to add something to the finished work of the cross. And if they can get people to believe that, they can stumble people. If someone really believes it, they can miss out on heaven. If they put their entire faith in Jesus and, they're not going to heaven. And so that's why they try to stumble people with that kind of thing. Here's what you ask. You run across anyone from a cult or any Jesus and person, you ask them this one question every single time, you'll never get a good answer for it because they don't have a good answer for it. If a person can be saved by some work of their own, some work of self-righteousness, baptism, completing the sacraments, some combination of belief in Jesus Christ and some sort of fulfillment of some kind of plan of works of man-based righteousness, then why did Jesus Christ have to exit heaven and come down onto earth and spill his blood upon the cross? What was the reason for that? And you'll never ever get a good answer for that because there is no good reason for that. If humanity can attain their own brand of self-righteousness, then Jesus Christ would never have to die on the cross. His death would be totally in vain. And why would God allow his son to go through that if we can somehow attain to self-righteousness on our own? It's likely that it could have been those legalistic teachers Paul's talking about, they're definitely the enemies of Christ. It could be also that this was a brand of teachers in that day that comes up again today. It's kind of like the prosperity theology folks, sort of the name it and claim it folks. 
It's sort of the self-esteem, self-help folks. They take the gospel and they repackage it as something that relates to your life today exclusively. That it's about the here and the now. It's about the temporal and it's not about the eternal. So it's about your job promotion, it's about your health, it's about your relationships. It's all about that Jesus did as it relates to your finances, but it's not about salvation and sin and heaven and hell. It's not about those things. And those folks, I don't care, listen. I don't care how charismatic they are. I don't care how influential they are. I don't care how many books they've sold. You take that book that you have that you're reading, you go on their website, you find out what they're all about. Because if they are preaching a different gospel, if they're either adding to, if they're the Jesus and people, or if they're saying the gospel is about your life now and not about eternal life, then you have nothing to learn from them. And you ought to get rid of that book. I'm not telling you who to read or who not to read. I'm simply saying that there's a lot out there that we don't need to read. Because these people, Paul says that they're the enemies of the cross of Christ. And it's a needed clarity. Sometimes I think we're afraid to come out and call it for what it is. That there are some charlatans out there that are merely in it for what they're going to get out of it instead of everlasting life, instead of promoting the gospel. And Paul makes that very, very clear. These are the enemies of Christ, verse 19, whose end is destruction. It's not going to end well for them. Whose God is their belly. That is, they're all about their own satisfaction, self-satisfaction, the flesh, the flesh, the flesh. That's why they're in it. Their God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame. They live for their own glory, meaning they're trying to make a name for themselves, who set their mind on earthly things. Now that's the great divide, by the way, between false teacher and a true teacher, a wolf in sheep's clothing and a real Christian. And it's convicting in a way, isn't it? Because you're seeing this contrast in verses 18 and 19 from a contrast we're going to see in verses 20 to 21. Because this earthly thinking, as it says there, our mind on earthly things, that again, look at that word mind, singular, they set their mind on earthly things. The teaching is about earthly things. They've wrapped their own gospel around earthly things, is what it says. Now the contrast is the gospel the gospel says deny self. It's all about the eternal. And so Paul says here as he closes up, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a word there in verse 20, eagerly. And the word eagerly means to be literally up on your tiptoes, waiting for the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Some of you have been around long enough, you lived through the whole Jesus movement of the 70s, where it's just like every single day before breakfast, the rapture of the church is going to happen. And then we went through a period of time where I think the church got complacent as it relates to the imminent return of Christ. And now again today, I think you're starting to see people rightfully begin to talk about it again. It's never bad to think that Christ could return at any moment. It has a purifying effect in our lives to think that Jesus could come at any moment. And I don't know, you tell me, that those of you who have been at this 10, 20, 30 years, has there ever been a time in your life that you were more convinced that the Lord Jesus could return right now than ever before? When you look around at this world and you look around at the things that are happening, I know that in my own heart, it has changed the way that I look at things dramatically. Just recently, 
developments around the world, the way things are happening, there isn't any shadow of a doubt. Oh, I would love it. I know there's some people, I know some people are here like, no, not yet. <laughs> because my daughter's getting married or I'm pregnant or I got school to finish and then I'm gonna start my job. I understand that mentality, but there would be nothing better for anybody here than if the Lord would return. There's nothing I wanna stay on my tiptoes for than for the Lord to return. Now, I hope, he fin- I hope he comes before I finish this sermon this morning. That's what I want. You're just hoping I finish this sermon this morning. <laughs> Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what it says, verse 21, who will transform our lowly body. And if you don't think your body is lowly, it's probably because you're sitting up there or you're under 35. But he's gonna transform that lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. It's going to be like his. Jesus' body, his resurrected, glorified body was different. Ours will be like his according, how's he going to do it? To the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. So you have this contrast here at the end where you have a citizenship of earth, verses 18 and 19. And the main point that is characteristic of that citizenship is a mind on earthly things. A singular mind on earthly things. Then in verses 21, he says, now, here's a citizenship. Here are citizens of heaven. What is characteristic of their mindset? We're focused on heaven. The big difference between citizenship of earth and citizenship of heaven. He says, look, we're citizens of heaven. Which means then, and I know this isn't always the case, that we ought to have our minds focused on heaven that we ought to press on, press toward that objective, that goal. He says, therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this singular mind, this mind that the world cannot have. The world that doesn't know God cannot be focused on heaven. It cannot be running the race for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus because that's not at the end of their world at this point. It is for us. Our mind ought to be on the things of heaven as their mind is on the things of the earth. The goal, that's the prize, it's singular. Paul said in this chapter, this one thing I do, it's not 24 things, it's not seven things. He says, this one thing I do. And then he uses the imagery of athletics to help us to understand what he's talking about, of running a race. You notice the greatest athletes in the world are specialists, did you know that? So you think about the MVP of the NBA this year, Steph Curry. Yeah, enough already. <laughs> Steph Curry's not in the text this morning. Steph Curry is great at one thing. And he said, oh, wait a minute, he can pass, he can shoot, he can dribble, he can do all those things. He's great at basketball. So he focuses on basketball. Now my guess is, great athlete like that, he could probably play tennis, he could probably swim, he could probably do lots of things. He's a professing Christian, maybe he could preach but he focuses on one thing. Now, Paul, big fan, it would seem, of the Olympics in that day, right? Olympic athletes focus typically on basically, what? One thing. That's why, like, I love to watch swimming because there's so many different events. And the reason why is because you don't usually have someone who's the best at the 100, the 200, the 400, and the 800. And if they are, they're certainly not the best at the 100, the 200, the 400, and the 800 of freestyle and backstroke also. And that's the idea. It's specialized so that people can focus on that one thing. And Paul says, look, I 
I want to lay hold of that for the reason which I was laid hold of. I want to figure out that one thing. I know I'm going to heaven, but I want to figure out that one thing that God has called me to do. And if I'm still breathing in and out, I haven't laid hold of it yet. He's still doing it. He's still working it in me. He's still working it through me in my life. That should be true spiritually. What is that one thing? Focused on that one thing and continue doing that. You know, Nehemiah is a perfect example. On Wednesday nights, we've been studying in that Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And it's a perfect picture of how the enemy attacks the work of God. He's called by God to build this wall around the city of Jerusalem. And all that happens one after the next is this attack or this attempted distraction to get his focus off of the work that God called him to do and on things that don't really matter. And is that not the story of our lives? And so what does Nehemiah say as he's on that wall and one distraction and one attempt after the next to get him off of that wall, off of that work? What does Nehemiah say to the people that say, hey, come have lunch with us? He says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm doing a great work for the Lord so that I cannot come down to you. What he was doing in building this wall, that was what God had commissioned him to do. And it was a great work that God had called him to do. He said, why should I leave the work? Why should the work cease? He says, well, I come down to you. That one thing was enough. I know what God's asked me to do. That's what I need to do. Billy Graham. Another example. Remember last week we were talking about there at the beginning of chapter 3 of Philippians. Paul said it's not tedious for me to remind you of these things. Like for some people they sit there and they go, man, we've heard this all before. Billy Graham has preached one message. One message. In cities, countries, and continents. I mean, who in the last century was used more mightily by God to reach the unsaved than Billy Graham? And he did it by preaching one message. We're told that 22 different cities within the United States of America, at one time or another during the Crusades, offered Billy Graham free land to build a Christian university. And every single time he said no, and the reason he said no was he did not want to be distracted. He did not want a diversion from the commission that God had placed on his life to bring the gospel to so many people. The old saying is true, right? Just say no. Sometimes as Christians, we have to realize and recognize that there are some things that we need to say no to. Most of those things are things of the earth, earthly things. Sometimes those things are even spiritual things. You can't say yes to everything because God has laid hold of you for this reason, for this purpose. And it's in that that I find that I've got to put my head down and follow him and stretch towards that tape to do what he's asked me to do. We learn how to say yes to the right things by saying no to the wrong things. Wilbur Chapman once said this. He said, my life is governed by this rule. Anything that dims my vision of Christ or takes away my taste for Bible study or cramps my prayer life or makes Christian work difficult is wrong for me. Anything that gets in the way. Paul says, so I press on, I press toward. Principally, I'm not going to worry about the past. I'm not going to be distracted by the things of the earth. I'm going to keep my focus on Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're told that using this same metaphor, that athletes, they discipline themselves, Paul said. They discipline themselves to achieve their goals. What they eat, how they work out, their regiment, all of those things, essentially is what he's saying. 
And then he makes this point, and it's very important. He says, now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. You understand what he's saying? So how is it that an Olympic athlete, as prestigious as it is, to win the 200 meter dash or whatever the case may be, will work as hard and discipline themselves as hard as they can, that they can stay focused on their goal for something that's a perishable crown when Christians are gonna receive an imperishable crown and we can't stay focused on the thing, the thing, the one thing that we're supposed to do that God's asked of, of us. And I think that's the, the very point that he's trying to make. That we would remain kind of steadfast, head down, God, what do you have for me in this lifetime, and I'll do it. The goal, the prize. What is that goal? That goal that someday, when we stand before the Lord and he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. What a day that's gonna be. He's our reward, Christ Jesus is. And no matter who you are, you say, well, wait a minute, isn't every Christian gonna hear that someday, no matter how hard no matter how steadfast, no matter how focused they are, if you're a Christian, aren't you going to hear that someday? Yes. But that's not what Paul's point is. I'm going to make one more point, and then hopefully this will bring it home you understand what I'm saying. If you are a runner yourself, or if you go to the gym and work out, or if you've competed in athletics, then you know that a big part of what you're doing is a mental battle with yourself to continue on when you would rather quit because it's hard. And so you have to kind of wage war within your mind to keep going, whether it's another lap around the block or it's another set of bench presses or whatever the case may be, you have to work hard to continue to be focused on what the goal is. Now for you, for me, whatever, when we're working out, the goal is something perishable. It doesn't matter. You're trying to shave a couple seconds off your time or you're trying to build a stronger core so you don't have back problems. That's all fine. What did the Olympic athletes win back in Paul's day? They got like a little olive branch they were put over their heads. Wasn't even a medal back then. Even the medal that it is today, it's perishable, but us, we have an imperishable crown that we're working towards. And as we, and as you do, and as you run, you say, I'm gonna go one more, I'm gonna shave some time off of my laps, and I'm gonna do a little bit more, I'm gonna work a little bit harder. You have a goal in mind. I don't know what that goal is, you have a prize. You're trying to get in shape. You're trying to feel better. Whatever the case may be, that's fine. Here's our goal. Here's our prize when we're running. Ready? You know what it is? At the finish line, guess who's waiting there for us? It's Jesus. And so now you imagine if you're running there and there's the finish line and Jesus is waiting for you at the finish line, are you going to slow down? Are you going to be distracted by what's on the side of you? Are you going to be pulled back by what's behind you? If you see Jesus and he's rooting for you and he's saying, come on, keep going. Keep going. Give it all you have. You're going to enter into the joy of the Lord soon. Just keep giving everything you have. You're not going to slow down. You're not going to look back and you're not going to be distracted. You're going to keep your eyes focused on him. And that's all that Paul is trying to get us to do here, to see Jesus there at that finish line. That is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the one thing I do. I stay focused on him. I don't worry about all those other things. And God can be glorified. Father, thank you for simplifying things down for us into a way that he can make sense. And it's possible for us to live a life that's pleasing to you and to watch by example and the pattern that others are before us, including your apostle, 
who wrote this text and brought all of his experience down to something that we can understand. Lord, where we know, and I know personally, God, that I, I can do all kinds of things that are of this earth. And I can have all kinds of reasons and excuses and fears that can hold me back from seeking you, from serving you, from being all that I can be in you. Lord, indeed, condemnation, current sin, things that I'm not able to entrust you with. All those things, Lord, are things that can get in the way. And God, we, we ask you would help us to remove those things in our life. Whether we could entrust you that your son paid too great a price for us to be walking around with those things. God, we don't come here. We need to be changed. We need what you're teaching us to continue to have an effect in us even as we leave here. And Lord, it's hard. I mean, you know us. You know us very well. You know the people in here that are hurting. You know the people in here that are in pain. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, where they've failed yesterday or last week or years ago. There's a sin, Lord. And even though maybe you've forgiven them, you already know that it's on their mind. A failure of the past. And they're thinking about it. They were thinking about it today. And God, you want to deliver us from these things. To forget these things that are in the past. And press forward. But it's hard. God, we're not good at it. And we need your help with it. Lord, I do pray for, very personally, for people that are here this morning that are being held back because of something that maybe nobody knows. Something that maybe has left a bad taste in their mouth in the past as it relates to ministry. Somebody let them down or hurt them. And Lord, I just pray that you would, even now, if you haven't already broken through, remind them of how this whole thing works, of how you communicate through the teaching of your word. And that it's not coincidence that they heard what they heard this morning. And that by faith, they need to believe that you're talking to them. Lord, help them to believe that this morning. Help us all to believe that this morning, that God, you desire for us something better than to dwell on the past and be kept on the sidelines because of failure. Lord, you have a much greater target in mind for us. Your son, Christ-likeness, becoming more like him, studying him, obeying him. Lord, help us to be like Jesus today. Help us to mimic him in everything that we do. In what we learn, what we apply here going forward. And help us to leave those things behind 
and to press forward to that upward call. Thank you, God, for calling us, for giving us a calling, for giving us a burden, a passion, not just to be more like your son, but that we get to partner alongside him in doing your work. Lord, would you recommission us again today? Would you take some people that are here, God, that have kept themselves out, would you recommission them? Lord, would you confirm in their heart right now as we sit here that you are talking to them? Lord, light a fire in them again. Reignite them again. Lord, wouldn't it be neat if one day we got to look back at this day and give you praise and glory for doing just that? Lord, do that in us. Do it in all of us, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name.